We're in the championship season as we have the first champion crowned and another one coming soon. A lot of playoff action to break down here on this episode of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. Hey, right back again. Episode number 134. I think that's about right. 34. I mean, that, you know what? That's, that sounds pretty close. So we'll go with that. Yeah, I normally have notes written out that have the thing on the top of the page, so I would know this, but I'm going to assume it's 34. And if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. But No, it's got to be up there. It's like 100 and yeah. something high. Hold on, wait a minute. I have a phone here that's connected to this board that has a podcast app on it. Why don't I just check it? You, you know, know what? That... That, that's, that's see, 21st century problems require 21st century solutions. Exactly. Oh, I was off. It's only 133. I jumped the gun. I guess we'll have to delay this episode for a week. Oh, okay. Damn shame. All right, I'll see you, I'll see you next week, Nick. Yeah, I, I'll call you back in a week. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm Nick. He's well. Everyone, we got a full house again this week. And uh, so we got baseball to talk about, too, I guess. We should probably talk about baseball on baseball podcasts now. Baseball? Yeah, it's a sport. They use a bat. They use a ball. Depending on the league, they throw it from about 60 and a half feet, give or take. Okay. Yeah. We're only well, talking well, about... Is yeah. there a league that doesn't? There is, but we don't really talk about them much anymore. <laughs> we're going to start doing that next week because, you know, we're going to run out of stuff to talk about soon. <laughs> <laughs> because we got the American Association naming a champion. We got the Frontier League. Being very close to that, and I appreciate Washington taking game two to prevent us from talking up this whole series about what could happen, only to have it be totally worthless by tomorrow night, which is I when. Uh, totally, you know what? I totally agree with that because it really would have put us in a bad spot. So th- thank you, Washington. Yeah. Like the more I do this show, the more I'm like, you know, I could definitely see how if you're covering a certain sport, you don't root for teams, you root for storylines. That wrap up neatly before your deadline. I definitely get that now. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's tough. It's a tough world. But, it is, but uh, we're making it. We're making it work on the Indie Bar Report podcast. Absolutely. And with that note, well, let's just do a little bit of cleanup work from like a couple of things I talked about last week, and then we'll get into the new stuff this week. Uh, really, the only thing I really kind of wanted to go back and circle back to. Just so that way I can get your thoughts on this, Will, would be the sure. whole Bobby Jones and Tri-City feud, or apparently Tri-City has accused Sussex of tampering because of the lineup they ran out there, which honestly, I think it's just kind of funny that they think they're going to get away with that in the league where position players do pitch on a fairly frequent basis, granted not to start a game, and granted not switching, but throwing hand, they're using you know, halfway through and then switching back. But it's still an odd one to, to run out there. Like, there's there's probably a, a better charge rather than tampering. And, I mean, I saw it last week where it was like, look, I see what they're going to say. I see what they're going to try to do. I also see that Bobby Jones is going to have an answer for that. And it's going to do absolutely nothing for uh, the team to try and, and get that to stick. So they're, they're just going to kind of have to sit on it. So I just wonder what your thoughts on that whole situation were. So, it's obviously, it's something that's been kind of 
And, and we brought up, I believe, a couple of weeks ago, we, we brought up the possibility of this happening, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not going to go ahead and say they were definitely trying to throw the game, but they certainly didn't care about winning the game. I'll put it like that. Now, the question becomes, does Sussex have to, like, full out try to play to win the game in a game that doesn't matter? No, they don't. But at the same time, you would hope that we're trying a little bit more than throwing position players and having them switching switching hands. And listen, I, and I understand you, you might be trying to entertain the fans in the last game of the season, uh, one that's been certainly a disappointment. Uh, and you're just trying to have fun on the, on the last day of the season. Uh, but you would hope that Maybe that's a kind of like a thing towards the end of the game you would do, maybe, yeah. and not like all nine innings. Uh, so I'm not going to go ahead and I, it's it would be very hard to prove that the miners all got together and said we're going to lose this game. However, it's pretty apparent that they were not. They didn't really care a whole lot about winning the game either. So. I, I think it's a, it's a tough situation, and given the history between Tri City and Sussex County, you can absolutely see why Tri City was upset. Why uh, Tri City was upset about it? You can absolutely see, it. and I think I think they're pretty justifiably so, um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, but I I, 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 can, I can understand their point. I can understand their point of view. Uh, now, do I think anything's going to happen? No, but. Uh, we know the history between the two, and it's just not—it's just not a good look. Regardless of the fact that they weren't—I really don't think they were like, "All right, we're definitely gonna lose this game," but they're just like, "All right, we're just gonna go screw around today," and you know, it, and it—it it, it destroyed the team's playoff chances. Not that Sussex is, has to care about that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I, I can totally understand—I could totally understand where Tri City's coming. Yeah, like that—that's kind of what I landed on too. I was like, it wasn't very sporting to go out there and run that line about there. At the same time, it's kind of on Tri City though for putting themselves in a position where you relied on probably the biggest rivalry you may have ever had in your franchise's history. I'm not well versed in New York Penn League rivalries, but from what we saw this year, I'd say that the Miners are at worst in the number two hole in the franchise's history. I'd say probably number one, but if you're putting your faith in that this team is what you're going to need to come through for you after everything from the past year and also having a pitcher ejected not three weeks earlier due to using a foreign substance and then expecting, you know, a realistic lineup in a meaningless game to come out for the full nine. I mean, you kind of set yourself up there to have the chair knocked out from underneath you, so to speak. So, yeah. I mean, like, I put that on them, too. you got to put yourself in a position where you're not reliant on other people, or certainly, at least, not reliant on the Sussex County Miners to get you into the postseason. Any other yeah. team, maybe. But this team, I'm sorry. You, there's enough bad blood where you knew something like this was going to happen, so you needed to do a little bit more to get there. Uh, likewise... Again, like I, I totally get it too. Like 
it's a meaningless game for Sussex. Why should they try to run out like regulars and everything in a meaningless game that will have zero impact, less than zero impact for them when essentially players already got flights booked home. They got everything all set up for them. So why should they have to go all out, especially guys that got winter ball? Why should they risk doing something that could jeopardize a winter ball contract? I totally get it. It's just like, it's a bit shitty to do just because it's not very sporting. But again, they're under no obligation to make it sporting. So, hey. I think that's the way I look at it. It's I just wish maybe it was done a little bit differently. Like, at least uh, run a real pitcher out there to start the game. Yeah, I, I would have, like, if you want to throw position players the last, like, three innings of the game, fine. I don't care. But Hell, in a meaningless uh, game, make it the last four or five. It's just like I don't, I don't know about starting the game like all these shenanigans and switching switching hands and like. Eh. Although I will admit the switching hands is funny. It was funny. It was funny. Uh, but I, again, I can see where Cassidy's coming from in that. But it's a long season. You play a lot of games, and so I, I think that you, leaving it up to Sussex to winning the game. It's kind of tough, and I think it, it carries less. That argument carries a lot less weight in baseball when the season is so long. Um, mm. But yeah, it, it, it's I, I don't have a huge issue with it, but I, I understand where Tri Cities coming from. Yeah, that's, that's kind of where I land out too. Which before we go on to new stuff here, I just want to say one thing. Imagine if next year Sussex County's playoff hopes. Hinge on Tri City winning a game. Oh man, you know you we you know that's going to happen now. Oh god, how great would that be? That'd be great. I think Pete would hold a grudge. <laughs> he he seems like calm uh, and rational individual. I would say most likely. I'm sure. No, he definitely does hold grudges. Yeah, but he absolutely does. Oh my god, I, you know you don't understand how excited I am to see the frontier league schedule for next year now absolutely oh absolutely because this whole beef has made that league just 10 times more entertaining i feel like we've talked more about the beef (laughs) in a lot of we've talked about the beef the same amount of time as the uh as as the actual league over the last like two three weeks because it's just that interesting exactly yeah because i mean everything else was pretty straightforward because we were just repeating ourselves about the actual play it's like okay these three teams have a shot these two teams have a shot. We're going to see how this shakes out. But the beef is constantly changing because there's always something new. But, yeah. yeah so it, it'll, be, it'll be fun next year. Can't wait. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk more about the Frontier League in a little bit here. But we got cleanup work to do first in the American Association because we do, in fact, have a champion. And that champion... I, I, I wonder who this is going to be. I know. it's It took us all by, sh- by shock. They are really underdogs the whole way through. They only managed to win 70% of their games just under that. So, I mean, real underdog story. Rudy can't even touch this kind of an underdog story. And that would, of course, be the Kansas City Monarchs. Whoa! I know. I know. Led by manager of the year, Joe Calfapietra. And the Monarchs, they... They finished the year on a 10-game winning streak. They swept the postseason, only the second team in league history to do that. 
believe the 2012 uh, Gold Eyes being the other team uh, to do that. Gabby Guerrero named the series MVP. We could go through each of these games, I suppose. But the, the story here is going to really just kind of come back to the Red Hunks did better than we expected. And then Kansas City pulled away and took it and just ended the series. Yeah, I think it, how I kind of looked at this is that Fargo, that Fargo Moorhead Chicago series was so good. Yeah, it was it was such an awesome series mm. that I think it took a little bit out of Fargo Moorhead because they just put everything they had into winning that series, and of course that that's what that's what they have to do. Yeah. Uh, and it's really hard for them to, to go win that series, and then and then all of a sudden Kansas City comes in. Kansas City's rested. I mean, because at that point, I believe what Kansas City was coming in on like with four days off. Uh, yeah, series, yeah that, four days off. Four days off. Yeah, the final game was um, Monday, September thirteenth, for Kansas yeah. City, and then they didn't play again until the seventeenth against Fargo Moorhead. Because that obviously that's a big. Not to mention, I mean, Kansas City's game three against Sioux City was fourteen to two. Yeah. So it's not like they threw anybody major in that game. Uh, yeah, I mean, you got all the time anyway. in the world now to set up your pitching rotation, your lineup exactly like you want it. You got everybody yeah. at a hundred percent. It's you're dealing with a full house as opposed to Fargo, who played the night before and was really kind of in a dogfight until about the eighth inning when you know mm-hmm. things started to separate themselves into the seventh, top of the eighth, right in that range. Right. And and I think it, it just took a lot out of them to beat Chicago. Not that they should have approached it any other way. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but that is a big advantage of Kansas City. And Kansas City, who, who was the better team yeah. to begin with, like, uh, regardless of uh, the kind of rest that they were on. But uh, it was Kansas City was the best team all year. To be quite honest with you, there's probably the most – this is the one of the best American Association teams ever. <laughs> it has to be. Uh, they just rolled Fargo Moorhead. It was a very good team, and the series wasn't. Uh, of course, ga- game two uh, w- was suddenly close. Game one, uh, it was close for a little bit, but uh, but game three, Kansas City rolled at home, and mm. uh, the Monarchs were the best team. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah, uh, it was a great fight put up by Fargo Moorhead, but. Just, just wasn't enough at the end, and you, you know, Nick. I think did, didn't you before the year pick uh, Kansas City over Fargo Moorhead in the final? I'm, I'm pretty I sure have. you did. Now I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that episode. If I did, I'll drop the you picked the Fargo one. Moorhead to go to the final. I remember yeah. that because you picked them to beat Milwaukee. Yeah, I just don't remember if it was Cleburne or Kansas City I had in the final. For me, like I said, I got Fargo Moorhead in the final, and I got uh, Kansas City in the final. I want to pick the Red Hawks again because I kind of want to hear Jack Michaels call a championship win. However, when you look at the two teams, I think Kansas City is the better overall team. And so for that reason, I go Kansas City. And I think when you compare the two lineups between Fargo Moorhead and between the Monarchs, the Monarchs are just a deeper team. They're more proven team. And I will say it will be close. That would be a very, very fun series to watch. But I think Kansas City winds up taking it. I think they get their first win since 2018. And uh, yeah, I think that's how that winds up shaking out there. But 
Right, you definitely have Kansas City. Okay, yeah. I'm, so, I'm almost certain you did. Yeah, because I, you know, if I remember, I was like, you know what, I just like the pitching of Fargo-Moorhead a little bit better than the pitching of Milwaukee. Yeah. Now, of course, my reasoning was certainly off, uh, because, you know, they lost like 90% of their pitching in the first month, but hey, teams are right, so I mean, that counts for something. Yeah, welcome, welcome to Independent League Baseball, when, where all the teams you preview before the year are completely destroyed within three weeks, and everything you said at the beginning means pretty much nothing. Oh, absolutely, and that's the fun part about it, really. It's like you put in like a solid week and a half worth of work previewing teams, and then it's like, oh goody, half of these guys just got purchased before we even were able to record, and I don't know who's going to replace them. Exactly. Yeah. And like the guys you start talking about, like, oh, yeah, this, this is a guy I think is going to win, I'll just say American Association, American Association MVP or American Association Pitcher of the Year. And they get picked up after, like, one start. Yeah. And it's like, oh. And that's what happens. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, so much for Logan Verrett. But, yeah, and looking back, game one, keep in mind, Fargo Moorhead led at one point. Right. Like, they led, and then it was just a bad fifth and sixth inning, and then they just weren't able to recover from that. And, I mean... Yeah, I mean... Like, it was a, a close series. Three, it really was. I mean, a 4-3 lead in the third inning is not necessarily... It's not a lot that, that you think is going to hold up, but uh, I, I think Fargo more had... Uh, I think their, their, their middle relievers certainly struggled at that point. I think when... Uh, and, and, of course, when Taylor Wright came in and really just couldn't find the zone that mm. hurt them a lot. Uh, and that really helped Kansas city kind of pull away a little bit. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, Fargo more, they got off to a good start. Yeah. They, they were, they were up. Uh, but, um, but Kansas city, just them being arrested had a big, it was big a effect. big advantage. Yeah, and then, I mean, in game two, it also didn't help that they really didn't have any starting pitching. I mean, they didn't really have starting pitching the day before either. So they ran Helton out there, and he gave up seven, and then the bullpen did their job after that. After that, the bullpen allowed, what, about six base runners for the whole game, and it's just, unfortunately, at that point, the damage was already done. So it put them in a hole here, but, I mean... 7-5 still is not like this absolute blowout, never had a chance type game. That's if Helton just did a little bit better. They would have had a legitimate shot at this. And Fargo, and Fargo Moore had never gave up. Yeah, uh, and that's, that and, was their hallmark in the Chicago series. And they had it all year. I mean, they could have put their heads down when they were down 7 nothing. They didn't. Obviously, Brett Helton just, just did not have it. Uh, didn't have it at all. And that's of course a, a a big credit to the to the Kansas City lineup who was who was just really 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 good, hmm. uh, but it, it, it's definitely an accomplishment that Fargo Moorhead was was able to make that that close, especially hey seven five in the sixth inning. I mean at that point you're looking all right we got three innings to make something happen, but and the back end of the the back end of the Kansas City bullpen was really really good. With Diaz Rhodes and of course Jameson McGrain to close it out, uh, and I just think especially especially uh, Diaz coming in, uh, Carlos Diaz, he was an inning and two thirds, giving up just one hit, striking out four the five the five batters he got out. Uh, he was really big in helping getting them out of a bad spot, 
really helping them get out of that sixth inning. Of course, during a, during that score of seventh inning, uh, that was really big for them. And to turn it up, turn it over to that eight nine combo of Rhodes and McGrain. I think Diaz was really uh, if I I wouldn't I'm not sure I'd call him the player of the game. One of the guys on offense uh, for Kansas City had great nights as well. But I, I think the one the the big turning point of the game was when Carlos Diaz was able uh, to come in and really stop that Fargo Moorhead rally in the sixth and really come out with that shutdown inning when all the momentum was not on their side at, the, at that point. Yeah, that was really. That was really the moment that kind of killed them in in that game there. It, that was also just like a theme, I think, for the whole real run of the series, where it's just Fargo Moore would start to get something going, things would be looking good, and then a, a Kansas City reliever would come in and then just slam the door shut on just about any game. Because if you want to look at game one even, you could kind of say the same thing here. They start getting to Max Hall, then Rhodes comes in, shuts the door, McGrain does, you know, what McGrain does. Even game one, or game three, rather, uh, had that to some extent. Now, it was a close game for the first couple innings, and Kansas City got to them in the third, but Fargo got one back in the fourth, and then Kansas City just kind of kept pounding away here. But they started to get things going at times, and then they just went nowhere. Now, granted, it also doesn't help that you only get one hit in the last four innings in game three that doesn't do you any good but but yeah no i feel like that that really is the the story of the whole series is just the bullpen for kansas city came in and stepped up when they were asked to do so and that's the difference which can i just point out on like uh what was it a tuesday or monday yeah on a monday night after rain people stayed at the kansas city game and watched them win a championship and not like a small amount over I was 3,300. Dude, I was, I was, that's, I was going to mention that. That yeah. atmosphere was awesome. Oh, it was great. And if you've noticed, like, all the Kansas City teams are congratulating them and promoting the championship and everything. And, I mean, I'm still taken back by the fact they had 33,000 in attendance. Yeah. That's pretty yeah, especially, damn good. It, it was awesome. Yeah. That, that atmosphere was awesome. It, it it was really awesome, and I think that certain I know the the Monarchs players certainly appreciated. I'm sure that played a, a pretty big role in uh, in having them really that this game not being all that all that close, uh, and really just putting it on them. But it, yeah, that atmosphere was was really really awesome. It was loud. It was energetic. Um, and and listen, this was this was a game you certainly could have seen Fargo Moorhead come out with the win. Matt Tomshaw yeah. was on the mound, right? Yeah. So uh, and I mean, it was it was a big crowd, um, and Kansas City came out with a lot of energy, despite the fact that they had won five games in a row in the playoffs. Uh, but it, Monarch certainly didn't want to mess around, and they they took care of business quickly. And, uh, and that that home crowd was certainly a big part of it. Oh, absolutely. But it was a, a tremendous year all the way around. And I do want to just talk real quickly about one of the guy. Is John Salviano not Mr. Clutch in this postseason? Oh, he certainly is. My goodness. Like, that grand slammy hit in the uh, North Division final. That was 
you know, like when he came up to the plate, I even said while I was watching, I was like, if this was me right now, I'd go, my team needs runs. I'm just going to kind of choke up on this and try and drop something in to get two runs across. I just want to keep the line moving. And he just said, screw it. I'm going for it all and went for it all and got it. I mean, and if I'm not mistaken, there was two outs as well. So, I mean, it, it does take a lot to say, you know what? I'm going to try and knock this over the wall with two outs and possibly leave these runners stranded here and really put us in a bad spot right now if I don't come through. It takes a lot of confidence in yourself to do it and then even more ability to actually get it done. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, what an awesome moment uh, that was. You could just see uh, the, the emotion to him, him watching it go over the fence. I mean, it was j- just an awesome, awesome moment. Of course, with the home crowd there, too. Yeah. Uh, just a surreal scene, uh, for sure. And certainly runs that they needed in that game five against a really good Chicago team. Um, that that played that played their hearts out to the very end. Mm. But yes, Silviano, he had a great postseason. Uh, he, he, whenever whenever the Red Hawks needed a big hit, whenever they needed someone to come up big, he he came in and did that. And uh, and that that grand slam is, I'm sure, a moment he will he will never ever forget. Even though the the Red Hawks that came up short of a championship. That, that Grand Slam is one we'll, we'll remember for a long time. Absolutely. And I really hope to see Silviano back next year because mm-hmm. I feel like he's on the fast track to really becoming one of those uh, Red Hawk legend type players. Because you have a postseason like that, you're already in the priority lane of that. You do that like twice in a row, I feel like you, at that point you're made. Yeah, I agree. I think... You'd love to see him come back. Maybe some unfinished business there as well mm. uh, with Fargo Moorhead next year. Of course, we'll have to see what the roster looks like. Uh, but you, you'd, that would be great to see. Yep, absolutely. So uh, on that note, um, do we have anything else left to say on the American Association for 2021? We'll do a more in-depth wrap-up of each of the leagues once every league's done, I guess we could spend a week on each of these teams and or a week on each of these leagues and go through each of the teams and everything. But just kind of like an overview of the postseason, anything else of note, maybe a player of note. Because, I mean, Guerrero did also have an, a really solid uh, postseason as well. 13 RBIs in six games. That's that's actually really well. I mean, I mean Darnell Sweeney, 10 for 21 in the playoffs, three home runs. Had an had an awesome awesome postseason, and that's what we expect from him, right? He's yeah. he's been a great player for Kansas City for a few years now. Uh, but I mean, just overall wrap up. I mean, Kansas City was has been the best team all year. Was the best team, uh, and they came out on top and they swept in in dominant fashion in both in both series. Uh, and listen, that that just speaks to the team that they were able to build, a uh, team that we saw from the beginning of the season, even though. Not the same guys. They lost some guys, brought in some new players. Uh, they just they just did a great job, and they're definitely they're, there's no question that they were the best team this season and uh, the right team to come out on top. Uh, and so that it, it's also cool that the first year after the name change they come away with the championship too. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, and yeah, just just congratulations to them. They they certainly deserve it. Yep, absolutely there. And I think 
one conversation we'll probably have in the offseason or when we revisit this league a little bit down the road is where does this Kansas City team rank, not just in American Association, but kind of across indie ball, at least in the recent history of it, for all-time team? Because, I mean, it was just a purely dominant team. I mean, you win 69 of 100 games, including your last 10, including a postseason sweep. That's pretty dominant. I mean, I'm not really sure what else to say. That's just rolling through your competition in every yeah, way, shape, and form. That's certainly a discussion we have to have. Like, you'd certainly think they'd be up there. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, in recent memory, they, they, they certainly have to be up there. Yeah, absolutely. So, as we go with the quick little changeover back to the Frontier League, I do want to just park a second here because we've neglected to do this for a couple of weeks. We have to hit you with the Lancaster Team ERA check. Ooh. So... Lancaster still hanging in there in the second from the bottom hole. They have a 729 ERA, so this has come down significantly since we started doing this. And the team that is behind them at a 730, so they're closing in on this, is the Gastonia Honey Hunters. So it, it's they really are in striking range, though. Keep in mind, too, Lancaster's played three and a third more innings. Technically, by earned runs, Lancaster or Lancaster is still, in fact, the worst by two runs. So, See, but it's not. It's not. It's not the. It's not the Lancaster uh, team earned run check. Bro, it's the earned run right check. Yeah, that is true. That is true. I'm just. I want to give some context around it. Really saying that Gastonia, if you're able to bat down the hatches for another couple of weeks. If maybe your bullpen management's a little bit better, then Ooh. you can well, certainly still pull this out. What are you implying there, Nick? I'm just implying that maybe they got some tired arms throwing a little bit too much. That's all I'm going to say. Mm. You have an inactive list. You can throw pitchers on there. Maybe try to get a little bit more out of your starters to give the the uh, bullpen a little bit of a break. Just saying, there's a lot of possibilities. Holy hell, Southern Maryland has nine shutouts this year. I didn't realize they had that many. <laughs> like, yeah. their pitching's been actually decent. No, no, their, their pitching's been pretty good. Yeah, I um, mean, by Atlantic League standards. By Atlantic League standards. You got to put that little caveat kind of, in there. The, the Ducks are kind of in a class of their own as they kind of are every year. Yeah, but, I mean, that's expected at this point. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see if uh, maybe if their bullpen man- management does get a little bit better. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll see the Barnstormers creep back to the top. But only time will tell. Yep, only time will tell them that. So starting next week, we're actually going to have to start talking about the Atlantic League again. So we're going to have to do homework on that. <laughs> it's kind of necessary here. But let's talk about the Frontier League instead because that's more fun to talk about. So Washington... Right after I said, I think Equip Quebec has this, went ahead and defeated Equip Quebec in five games. Then Schomburg, after I was like, ah, looks like Florence has him, decided to beat Florence. So we got a Schomburg-Washington final. And then Schomburg took game one for nothing. Then the Wild Things answered back with a big home run in the ninth inning to go up 6-5. They take game two. Game three is Friday night, so tonight. 
uh, as I record this yesterday, as you listen to this, the Probables are Ryan Middendorf versus Alex Boschers. That'd be Schomburg's pitcher versus the Washington pitcher. I don't have really any idea where this series is going, although it is starting to vaguely rem- resemble that last series against Equipe Quebec where Equipe won 9 nothing. Then a couple of late hits got Washington to win to even up the series. Then a kit went up again. Then Washington answered back, and then Washington ultimately won it. Obviously, Schomburg is not Quebec. They are two very different teams. But that said, Washington has shown resilience. It is now a best-of-three series when you get down to it, and all three games are in Washington. I'm not sure how much of an effect that will have, although, granted, they have a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night crowd all coming in. Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think it has. I think it will have a good, a good, like a solid impact. Honestly, mm-hmm. uh, I think the Friday, Saturday, Sunday crowd is a bigger impact. I think than people realize, uh, especially uh, e- even if even if it's like not. I'm not saying it's like a sold out crowd or anything, but uh, but it, it's it's a big it's a big advantage. I think at that point, especially when it's one one. I mean, them winning the game two. Uh, in Schaumburg was was really really big for them. I mean, because coming back from two zero, uh, we've seen it before. We've seen it plenty of times in indie ball, but not particularly likely. Even even if Washington was playing all three games at home, but uh, and you, you think Washington at least for the most of the year has been the better team than Schaumburg. I mean, personally, yeah. Uh, I I had to go back to this because we are talking about the championship series. Mm. How did Schomburg beat Florence? I don't really know how they did that, you know? I mean, like, I'm fine talking about the other two series here because, I mean, didn't really get much of an opportunity to talk about those uh, last week. And, yeah, I don't really know how that managed. I mean, Schomburg, it's not even like they just kind of outslugged them or or anything like that. Like, there was a 12-2 game, but outside of that, you had 5-3, 4-3. Like, these were not, like, totally out there games. I don't really know yeah. what they did. So I, mean, look, I wonder if Evansville was in there instead of Florence. Do you think that? Do you think the results change? I don't want to say they change because I think that would, you know, necessarily mean much. I mean, we saw Schomburg play hard and competitive down the stretch. Certainly, that said, Southern Illinois or Florence, I think, would have put up more of a fight. That's, I agree with that. That said, I think Florence just kind of was a paper tiger for the most part of the year. You know, it's just, they never, like to me at least, they never seemed like this really ultra threat team where yeah. it's like, I don't want to be matched up against them. They always seemed beatable, you know? They never right. seemed like this team that was high and above everything. And I know you're not going to get... At Kansas City every year, they're rare to have a team like Kansas City was to the American Association this past year, where you just kind of walk in and you go, oh, we're probably not going to win today. We have about a one in four shot of winning. I know that's not likely to ever find to find that. That said, normally you have a team that's like, okay, this is pretty clear cut that this team is just kind of better than everybody else. And you didn't really get that this year. And no, Florence, I don't think you got that. Yeah, and like you had a lot of good teams. You had a lot of competitive teams. I mean, the whole West Division was really pretty much competitive. And until about mm, August, most of the uh, Northeast Division was very competitive. And for most of the year, the Atlantic Division was very competitive. So you had a lot of very competitive teams. It's just, for me, 
I never looked at Florence and said, yep, that's a team I don't want to be matched up against in the postseason. That said, I still kind of expect them to beat Schomburg. I think we all kind of agree that, yeah, whoever comes out of the Atlantic is going to be the weakest opponent. Quebec or Tri-City alike, it's just, you know, whoever comes out of there is probably going to get steamrolled. And then Schomburg was pretty much the close second on that front where we're like, they didn't really play that many great teams. Like, yeah, when they play in the West, they did fine. But those were really like their only competitive games. The rest of the teams in the division really were never serious threats to them after about the fourth week of the season. So that, that's kind of where I land on it. Yeah, I totally agree with what you said of, about about Florence. I think the Florence in that West division is definitely the uh, the the third third best team. I think talent wise, and listen, it's really close. They won the, they won the division. Uh, and, and they deserve they deserve a lot of credit for winning the division. Uh, however, I I really do think Evans, Evansville lost right. They, they 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 played pedestrian baseball down the stretch. Southern Illinois was a little bit too was too little too late, and Florence played well, and they and they took it at the end. But I think that I really do think that if Evansville was in instead of Florence, I I think Evansville would have won. Um, like, and I, I think in the same way, I think Southern Illinois pitching would have, would have led them over Schaumburg. And that's not to take anything away from, from Schaumburg at all. I mean, I think they, they, they played a great series against Florence. They, 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 they took care of business. They hit really well. Um, but, and I also think it's, it's an advantage that Schaumburg really line could line up their guys the way they wanted to when Florence is in a dog fight for the last two months of the year. Yeah. Like, I want to say Evansville would have done better, but I mean, keep in mind, they weren't playing well down the stretch, so I mean, that doesn't really inspire me with a lot of confidence they were going to turn it on in the postseason. I mean, Southern Illinois perhaps, but I mean, they themselves, I mean, I'm I'm not sure what their odds would have looked like against uh, Schaumburg either. I mean, you have two teams going in opposite directions, uh, so there's that there, but I mean, talent-wise, yeah, I, I think either one of those teams would have done a lot better. Yeah, so uh, it's just an interesting hypothetical. Oh, yeah, no, it was definitely uh, interesting because there was three teams in that division that should have made the postseason that didn't. Yeah, and of, of course that's always that's always tough, but uh, but, but certainly, certainly just fun to think about. Yeah, but um, but one one going to Washington, I'm I'm very excited for it. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be a really really fun. Uh, Fun end to that series, um, Schaumburg of Schaumburg. Oh. That that game too they played over in Schaumburg was was really entertaining. It was really close mm-hmm. uh, with Washington coming out on top. So uh, excited for game three tonight as we're recording this on Friday. Of course, when when you're listening to this, you already know what happened in game three. Yeah, uh, as before we do, but uh, but we'll, we'll see where it goes and we'll see who who gets the opportunity to win the title. Um, Saturday night. Yeah, I, I'm I'm curious to see where this is going to wind up going. Obviously, uh, you're going to have all hands on deck for Game 5, and if you get to a Game 5, that is. Game yeah. 4 will be interesting to see who each side winds up throwing out there, because you'll have some guys that can run a short rest, but then you go, eh, if we do need them tomorrow, do we want to use them today? That kind of a thing. So I'm going to be very curious to see how this winds up shaking out. And let me just say, BJ Sobel, 
did a hell of a job in game three. Three innings of one hit, six strikeout ball. Great job in relief there. Yeah, that was big time. So, big time for sure, but yeah, so it's I guess gonna be, it's going it's to be a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. It definitely is. And who knows where it will, uh, will it, where it will wind up going. Uh, just quickly to take a look to see if we could uh, kind of guess who's going to wind up being the the MVP of this series here. Which, oh, well, okay, Braxton Davidson's going off this uh, postseason here. Which, it's kind of hard to pick a, uh, a postseason MVP or a finals MVP at this point because we're only two games into the series. That yeah. said, I am going to cheat and look at the last seven days here and see who would be towards the top of that list. Perhaps an Angelo uh, Gums, uh, perhaps maybe. I mean, at least for Schomburg, you'd think Neaport uh, is certainly in the mix. Like yeah. he has been the entire year. He, he hasn't missed a beat. You just remind me, we never ran through the actual Frontier League awards. Well. We probably should do go. that, shouldn't we? We could. All right. And the guy I was thinking of was uh, Andrew Check. Andrew Check hit the home run, so maybe he has a shot too. Um, okay. Now hitting over 300 on the postseason as well. So it, it is hard to pick one after only two games, though. You know? Exactly. Yeah, it's not even like it's it someone's up too well because then you can start looking through and go, who had two really solid games. But yeah, yeah. So with that, I guess we will uh, quickly run through these Frontier League awards that we've been sitting on for about two weeks now. And then uh, we'll get out of here from there. Because I actually do have a rant this week. Because if you follow oh. if you follow the Twitter, you'll know exactly what the rant is. And then I have uh, something just as kind of a quick throwaway to mention as well. But um, we do need to run through the Frontier League awards fairly quickly. Uh, MVP was Quincy Nyport. Picked him at the halfway mark. I'm happy and proud of myself for getting that one right. Uh, pitcher of the year, Ryan Hennan. Rookie of the year, Ryan Hennan, both from Washington. Um, I believe gotta be comeback player of the year. See, when I wrote all of these, uh, things out, I knew what they meant. And then I forgot what the shorthands were. So I would assume it'd be comeback player of the year for Nick Ward, uh, manager of the year, Andy McCauley from Evansville, and Alex Bosch has won, uh, coach of the year from Washington. Has, has a coach ever won? Or has a manager ever won manager of the year in a year they didn't make the playoffs? Well, I can guarantee you for 2021 now, but that said, I don't really know. I'd have to look back through, and I think the Frontier League's website, if I remember right, is the one that's a real pain in the ass to look through to find records and whatnots. Wish I had a media guide over there, but um, regardless, yeah. Uh, I personally, I don't got a problem with any of these. I kind of called Nyport. I think he contributed an awful lot to Schomburg, probably more to Schomburg than any other player did for their team. Hennon being a rookie certainly is worthy of rookie of the year. And I mean, if I'm not mistaken, he was one of the few players with a sub three ERA. Um, so certainly worthy of uh, pitcher of the year. I can't really comment on the others. I would say manager of the year, Andy McCauley, certainly does uh, deserve that. Even if he didn't get to win the division, uh, he was only a half game back, but set the record for Evansville for wins at, I believe it was 57. Uh, so certainly a, a solid performance uh, from him and his team this year. And Indy Ball is one of those 
areas where you can kind of directly point to a manager as the reason why a team was that good because, well, he frankly assembled the team and ran the team and managed the team uh, largely. Uh, obviously, the GM has some influence there, or more than some, but a lot of it does fall on the manager, so I'm cool with that yeah. as well. So I agree with the, the, the player awards, certainly. I think uh, Hennon has been so good this year. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that there's no no argument, certainly for Rookie of the Year, no argument uh, for Pitcher of the Year, and, and Nyport as well. Um, congratulations on calling that at the halfway point. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he was very, very good. I do disagree with the manager of the year. Okay. Um. I think it should have been Tom Baith. And and, uh, and I, I really think it should have been Tom Baith because uh, Washington coming into the year was in a really, really tough division. Yeah. Uh, what we thought to be uh, between the Jackals and the Miners. He's competing against two teams in that division who certainly have an advantage coming into the year with, the I guess, the veterans they had to choose from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and with Sussex... As talented as a roster, a talented of a roster that that team had, uh, and for Washington to eventually, for what turned out to for them, pretty much to just wipe the floor with them. I mean, seriously, at the end of the at the end of the year, this division wasn't even that close. Yeah. Six and a half games, six and a half games, and I understand that Washington didn't have the best record in the league. Florence and Evansville both had better records, but I think at the same time, Tom Vaith really deserved this award because nobody saw Washington winning this division by six and a half games coming into the season. And it might turn into them winning a championship. I understand it's a regular season award though. So that's not completely relevant, Yeah, but, uh, but I really do. I, and I feel pretty strongly about it that I do think uh, Tom Vaith should have been manager of the year. Uh, the Washington had an awesome year, really kind of, uh, and they had a good roster coming into the year, but winning a division that had Sussex and New Jersey in it and completely destroying Sussex by the end of the season. I think he, I think he really deserved this award, honestly. All right. Before I, I play devil's advocate on that, okay. I do want to know one thing. If let's say the Otters would have made the postseason over the y'alls, would that have changed things for you? Because it's an equally as difficult division, if not more so. Hmm. Because already the Otters uh, had a better record, they had a team with a better record in front of them, and I would Il- say I would say no, and I would say no because, uh, and I think the reason why I would still go with Tom Bates is because, and this has always been kind of my view on Manager of the Year, and and I I understand the the argument for indie ball makes it a little bit different. Uh, I still just with the the obstacles that. Uh, the the wild things had that no one else really did, and going against those Can Am teams and and taking down Sussex, I think is more impressive, uh, and would lead me to still giving Faith uh, Tom Faith my vote. Uh, personally, that's how I feel. No idea how popular it is, my, but uh, the, the I o- still would have gone with them. Yeah, the only reservation I have to that is that, I mean, if we're being entirely honest with ourselves, New Jersey was never really even a factor in this division. They were out just kind of yeah. doing whatever. They finished tied for the second worst record in the league with Joliet on the gateway out, did them by like a game. So it's not even like, you know, they're among the bottom feeders of this league. It, that's yeah. a bad year. It happens. 
as far as Sussex goes, when Sussex was still on and turning up until like August 1st, it wasn't really that close. The Miners had them by about four and a half, five games. So, yeah, Washington started to get going. They were starting to make it competitive and whatnot. But the Miners just did not play good baseball for really all of August and the about two weeks in September they played. I mean, hell, the Miners finished two and eight to end the year, and they were slowly just giving games away, seemingly in bunches, losing them in seven-game bursts at a time. So I'm not really sure I've chalked it up to Washington beating them as much as the Miners beating themselves. Nick, it's not like Washington was playing 500 ball while Sussex was falling on their faces. Yes, but my main point here is it's not like they were in a really tight divisional race when you could point to like an Evansville or a Florence and go, look, they're in a tight divisional race. Hell, I mean, if the Alls would have played one game that wasn't rained out and they got lost, it would have been tight. Now, granted, I think they still hold the tiebreaker, so that's why they didn't bother making up the game. But at the end of the day, it was a half game difference. Two teams both had a better record. And I'd argue that the the teams were just as difficult to play against. You had a 57-win team and a 54-win team in your own division. That's certainly not exactly easy to do for anyone. That, that's why I don't really mind the Otters manager, Macaulay, getting the getting this award because he had a fight the whole way through into the last day of the season to get that. And keep in mind, too, it's not like Washington was only playing Sussex and New Jersey. They also got the benefit of playing New York a lot. They also got Tri-City, especially when they weren't doing all that well. They got a Kip Quebec during their stretches where they weren't doing that great. There was a lot of time where they were playing maybe not the best teams in the world where you could point to and say, well, more often than not, Evansville was constantly playing your Southern Illinois, your Florences, your Schomburgs, teams that were making the postseason. Like, yeah, they had some Windy City games, some Lake Erie games, and some Joliet games, games against teams that weren't that great. But that more than makes up for the games they were playing against uh, these postseason opponents. They had a pretty even split here where Washington was playing teams that really just were not doing all that good. I, 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 could, I acknowledge that. Uh... Although I, I do think that I, I don't want to chalk up coming back against Sussex to, well, I mean, and Sussex certainly lost their games and they struggled, but a lot of those were also Washington wins, you know? Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like we're not going to convince each other yeah. uh, of this, but uh, yeah, like, I, like I said, I don't have a problem. If, if Tom Vaisler won, it would have been fair. It would have been fine. It's just, I don't have an issue with, him not winning. Like I feel like there's an argument to be had that there's there was a better option. I think there's an argument to be had. I just it's just not the one I agree with. <laughs> Fair enough. Here uh, we do have two All Star teams to quickly run through here, and then some other miscellaneous awards. So we'll run through that real quickly. Uh, the Can Am Conference All Stars: Jeffrey Para from Equip Quebec at catcher, first base Brad Zunica from Tri City. Second base, David Gladeau from Equipe Quebec. Third base, Juan Silvario from Tri-City. Shortstop, Cito Culver from Sussex County. LP Pellier, Martin Figueroa, and Chuck Taylor take the three outs, uh, outfielder spots. Uh, Peltier from uh, Equipe Quebec, the other two from Sussex County. The heathen position that shall not be named belongs to Dennis Phipps uh, from Tri-City. Ryan Hennon will take the... Uh, 
the starter of the year and then the reliever all-star spot goes to the law firm of Trey Cochran Gill out of the Tri-City region of New York. Uh, any issues there? Uh, no, I don't think I have any issues with that. All right. That sounds about right. Yeah, I, I agree with all of it. I don't think there's anything uh, you know really standing out as a snub or anything of that sort. Uh, switching over to the Midwest All-Stars, uh, catcher Trevor Crayport. Uh, from Florence, Riley Crane from Evansville, as well as J.R. Davis from Evansville, takes the first and second base spots, uh, respectively. Third base, Braley Wild, or Braley Ware, uh, from Joliet. Luis Pintor and shortstop from Florence. And then in the outfield from Florence, uh, Chad Cedeno, Noah Early from, uh, in Southern Illinois, and Chase Dawson from Schaumburg. Heathen position that shall not be named, Quincy Nightport from Schaumburg. Uh, Zach Westcott is the starting pitcher now of the Lexington Legends, by the way. Uh, but he was of Southern Illinois to start and play most of the year. And Logan Sawyer, now of the Lancaster Barnstormers, uh, formerly of Evansville, takes the reliever spot. Any concerns there? I, I think I think I think those both. I think they did a good job. I think both of those sound about right. Yeah, they they seem to look about right. I'm not sure I would have put a Joliet player in there, but I mean, hey, they're there. Which, if you notice, no Gateway players, no New Jersey players, and no Windy City players or Lake Erie either. Just, I'm fine with that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they were also the worst teams in the league, so I got no qualms there. But hey, just I just thought it'd be interesting to note. Uh, organization of the year belongs to Schaumburg. Executive of the year belongs to Schaumburg GM Michael Larson. Um, trainer of the year, Riley Shimon from Washington. Uh, writer of the year, Mark Singlis from the Albany Times. Covered the the uh, the Valley Cats. Uh, we used his reporting an awful lot. He, he is very good. He is, he is very, very, good. very good. Yeah, honestly, I'd like to almost get him on the show. Maybe we'll try for that. Yeah, we'll try for that in the offseason. Maybe we'll have a shot at that, but... Um, but yeah, no, all, if you want to cover or have any of his writing, all that's in the show notes. You just got to go back through the various shows to find which ones we're talking about. Uh, but he does a very good job, uh, certainly. Uh, then let's see here. Broadcaster of the Year belongs to Kyle Dawson from the Washington Wild Things. Um, let's see here. There's a lot of these ones that I don't recall what the hell I put them down for. But uh, yeah, Keith Stewart. Todd uh, from Florence, Mel Chatham was the umpire of the year. Um, I don't know if remember Mel what. Mel Chatham, yeah, Atlantic League umpiring legend. Uh, coach, I don't even know what COY would be for Key Stewart, but whatever it is, congratulations, Key. You won it. Uh, I forget. That's the problem with waiting two weeks. I totally forgot what these abbreviations were. I mean, I forgot until just now that we had to do this. I don't have, like, the notes of the page pulled up. So, uh, Todd Vanistrand from Tri-City, you won something, whatever the hell F-O-Y would be. And then whatever P-O-Y would be, uh, Logan Douglas from Washington won it. Washington did really well in these awards. I just want to point that out. They won, like, eight or nine of them. So, uh, I'm going to assume we don't have any concerns there. Although I'm not sure we would have many uh, replacements at the ready if we did. I don't see any concerns there. Yeah. I'm going to quickly just try and see if I can't find that page with the awards on it. So that way I could go back and get those uh, abbreviations that I missed correct real quickly. Oh, here we are. 
Frontier League announces 2020 awards. Let me just scroll all the way down here, down here. Ah, uh, here we are. Clubby of the year. That was Keith Stortz. Yeah, I would have never got that one. Uh, so Keith won Clubby of the year. Field of the year. So I assume that means grounds crew of the year. Belongs to Todd Vanderstrand of Tri-City. We got through Mel. And then photographer of the year was Logan Douglas of the Washington Wild Things. I would have went with Phil Hoops there because Phil's great. But yeah. Phil so Hoops. He's a bro. He lets me use he's his amazing. pictures a lot. Total bro move. Uh, so that's about all I got. So uh, so I think we can go to the plugs and then uh, we'll get on with getting out. If you want to follow the show, you can do... Ah, uh, you know, I just remember we forgot to do before we go to these plugs. What? Who do you think is going to win the Frontier League series? Uh, I'm going to go Washington. Okay, that, this is not going to be that anticlimactic. I'm going Washington in five. I think that's going to repeat itself from the last series. All right. Now to the plugs. If you want to follow the show, you can do so on Twitter at IndieBallPod. You can also do so on Instagram at ALPV underscore news or at IndieBallReport. You can also find all the episode show notes and links to everything as well as articles that we have done on this show and in the past week on the website at IndieBallReport.com. Just go to the episodes tab to find the episode you want the show notes tab for the show notes and episode descriptions articles for articles and then everything else from there it's pretty straightforward and self-explanatory i think you could probably figure it out from there uh if you want to listen to the show somewhere other than the website you can do so on tune and stitcher spotify uh apple podcasts amazon music just about anywhere you can find podcasts the show is available for you to like rate review and subscribe as well as download the show and take it with you where you go so be sure to do all those things to enjoy the show and help us grow that being said i don't think we have anything else um to plug so do we have anything else left to add well i'm very interested to hear your rant so uh so i'll keep mine short red sox are playing the yankees this weekend uh if the red sox win the series they basically clinch uh a playoff spot and i hate the yankees so let's hope that the red sox that the Red Sox perform well, take care of business, and uh, essentially lock up a playoff spot. Well, see, that's not a good character, hating the Yankees. Because, I mean, that, it's a moral failing to be a Yankee fan. But Yeah. That, and, I, and I'm also very... I, I apologize for what the Red Sox did to the Mets this week, Nick. You know, I've that just stopped not, caring about the Mets. Nice. I've that just stopped just caring nice. about their season. I've kind of admitted defeat on it. We knew it was coming. And now it's just turning into the curve. That's all that's left. That being said, uh, quick thing to get out of the way before the ramp. Rangers preseason starts tomorrow when you're listening to this. So uh, I believe it's either the 25th or the 26th. I think this comes out on 25 and the game's on 26th, if I'm not mistaken. Anywho, it starts this weekend. I'm excited for it, even though it's just preseason. I'm one of those people that watches preseason hockey. So, uh, yeah. I believe it. That's fair. Preseason hockey, I don't mind. Yeah. This is in football I hate. See, because with uh, hockey, you don't have the luxury of just subbing out starters. Everybody's got to play. Yeah. Plus, yeah. there's a very limited amount of roster spots. So even the guys that aren't going to make the big club, they're fighting for AHL spots. So they got to do everything yeah. they can. So it's still entertaining and interesting. Um, I agree. I, I think preseason hockey, I'm, I, I, I don't mind at all. Exactly. So I'm excited too. Yeah. So with that said, if you follow the Twitter at IndieBallPod, you will know on Sunday, I got pretty fed up with all the Jet fans complaining about Zach Wilson. So I said, 
this on this next episode, this week's show, I'm going to go on a Jet rant, and I'm not even a Jet fan, which is true. I could care less about the Jets. But being in the New York metro area, I have to hear about the Jets. And so I, I want to go on this little bit of a rant here. It's a bit of a tangent. So stick with me. If you don't care about the Jets or the rant, you can tune out now. That's all that's left. So Jet fans were calling for Zach Wilson side because he threw, what, four picks against a Bill Belichick defense? In the second start of his NFL career? Really? Yep. Really. So, a defense that was totally revamped because the first time in years that Belichick decided to open up the purse strings and actually spend on defensive players. He he rebuilds a total defense. You have, again, Bill Belichick. Regardless of what you think about him as the person or how he tries to sometimes gain a less than fair advantage, the man's still a tremendous coach. And he knows how to build a team, whether that be around an offensive star, like for most of the time in New England, or whether it be around a defense. The man knows how to build a team. So you're throwing up a rookie quarterback against that already. You shouldn't be going in with high expectations. Which, by the way, if you're throwing a rookie quarterback out there in the second start, the expectation for him to do well should be pretty damn low. Because again, rookie quarterback that's only on his second start, they're not going to know how to play in the NFL for a solid year. And that's a problem that I think a lot of people still quite aren't getting at because for so many years, it was you draft a quarterback in the first round and only like a handful of them are ready day one to actually be a starter. The proper way is you draft the quarterback, you have some sort of journeyman vet as the starter for most of the year, is sit the rookie quarterback so that way they can learn how to be an NFL quarterback. And then maybe if the season's lost by week 14, you give them the final two or three starts of the year to see what they can do and get some confidence up and see what they need to work on the offseason going into next year. That's kind of how it was. And now it's, we drafted the quarterback, they're kind of expected to be playing and being the starter by week one. And just if you look at quarterbacks that have done well, that really hasn't been the case. I mean, who's the one holdout as of recent? I mean, like the only two guys I can really think of would be Josh Allen and Watson, which Watson has his own issues now. But like Josh Allen's the lone example here because Mahomes sat behind Alex Smith for a year, and I don't think anyone's going to argue that he's the best quarterback in the game right now. Plenty of great quarterbacks sit. And so the Jeff fans just kind of expect to run a kid from BYU, a school that's played who exactly, that's a real challenge, with like the exception of Coastal Carolina, that's a new, a relative newcomer. They don't really play that many real opponents. He's never really faced a lot of NFL quality talent. Granted, Division I college football is still extremely high quality, uh, regardless of what team it is. It's still just not NFL type. It's not like you're playing in the SEC where seemingly half the conference is going to be in the NFL sooner than later. So you're running a kid that hasn't really faced a lot of true opponents, is still very new to the NFL against a high-quality defense. Why exactly did you expect for him to go out there and play like Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes? It just was never going to happen. And further to that point, it's not even exactly like you gave him a lot of weapons. Who the hell is he throwing to? Corey Davis? Who, who even is the Jet running back? I don't even know. Plus, what is the offensive line? The only offensive lineman on the Jets that I know that is kind of worth something is Mackay Becton. 
And he was hurt last week. He didn't play. Yeah. So you don't have really a real offensive line with a young quarterback with no real offensive weapons against a good defense. At what point did you expect for this to go well? And even still, it's like, yeah, he threw four picks. But outside of that, what else did he do? Did he look lost? If he did, maybe he shouldn't be starting right now. And then you have all the Jet fans that are ready to give up and say, oh, he was no good. He's the second overall pick. He threw four picks in game one. Maybe we should give up on him. And to that, I go, why don't you take a look in Carolina and look at Sam Darnold and how well he's doing right now? Because it's almost like if you have an organization that builds around a quarterback and goes, we need to give our quarterback more than two seconds to throw the ball. Otherwise, this is going to be really shitty for their development that it's going to work out well. Or if you give a quarterback weapons to go to and actually be able to play the position with, it's going to go well. It's just it's like this jet cycle here where it's draft the quarterback high, give them no help and no weapons to work with. They do poorly, chase them out of town, draft a new quarterback, repeat the cycle. It's like, if you're going to be doing this, you might as well use those high round picks and all these other high draft picks on actually building up an offensive line, getting wide receivers, getting a half back that's worth a damn, and then pick up a quarterback. Because if you build good pieces around, you can make an average quarterback look really good. I mean, is anyone here going to say Kirk Cousins is an amazing quarterback? Not really. He's above average. That's what he is. But he looks pretty good when you give him a lot of pieces to work with. And it's just, it's boggling my mind that Jet fans don't seem to quite grasp this. It's not the quarterback, it's everything else. You can keep putting whoever the hell you want in there. If they don't have a good O-line, they don't have people to throw to, it doesn't matter who they are, they're going to do poorly. It boggles my mind that Jet fans still get all pissy about this, and they want to run a 22-year-old kid out of town because he had one bad game, too. It's like, it's one bad game. He's played two in his career. Why don't you give it a full year before you have an overreaction to something? So uh, that was really the main point of my rant. If you should be pissed at anyone, be pissed at the Jets for putting him in that position and stop running the kid out of town because when you want to keep harping on him, then local media is going to harp on him. Social media is going to harp on him. And if you're a 22-year-old quarterback that's coming off a shitty game, you take a look at that, you turn on the radio in your car, you look at Twitter, and you see all the vitriol coming at you. That's just going to kill your confidence even more, which is going to kill your ability on the field even more. And it's just one giant self-feeding loop. And it's like mind-boggling me that the Jets don't realize this. And just to further the point about the O-line and everything, because some people are rolling their eyes about this, I guarantee you. An example that I think is pretty good here is Josh Rosen. And I know Josh Rosen isn't that great of a quarterback to begin with. But he's a lot better than what we saw in Arizona and Miami. Two teams that were explicitly taking and had the two worst O-lines in football the year that Josh Rosen was under center for them. And not to mention, they both had uh, defensive-minded head coaches there that weren't exactly, you know, suited for developing a young quarterback either. But it's a lot of parallels there where it's like, it's a bad team with a bad O-line. How the hell is a young quarterback supposed to learn to stand in the pocket and make a good throw when they have to run for their life? like two out of every three plays it's just not it's not how you develop a quarterback of course they're going to get happy feet and make bad throws when they're worried about getting crushed by 350 pound linemen it's not surprising to me and the same thing happens in new york all the damn time because they don't build the right way and the only time in my mind that you draft a quarterback before you have an o-line in place or a solid offensive option to support the quarterback 
as if it's a 100% can't miss type prospect. In that case, then you have to take the quarterback. But even I think if everything works out right, what exactly is Zach Wilson's ceiling? Like, let's be realistic here. Probably above average. Like, probably a little bit better than Kirk Cousins. I think that would be fair to say is his ceiling. Like, come on. We're expecting a lot here from not really that much. It's an unrealistic expectation. And I think that's what annoys the hell out of me about Jet fans and what really pissed me off watching all the Jet fans overreact. And so that's pretty much my rant. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I could not agree more. Could I could, could not agree more. Like, honestly, the, last year, BYU played nobody. And and my my opinion on Zach Wilson, I'm not a Jet fan either. I'm a Giant fan. Yeah. So I, we have our own problems. Yeah. But my, my opinion has always been, I think Zach Wilson will be a good quarterback eventually, but he will have a terrible first season. And the reason I said that is because the team around him is terrible. And listen, they have more picks coming up, but the the team around him is awful. Uh, and he is being thrown into the fire right away. Like it, Justin Fields is a significantly more like more pro ready quarterback than Zach Wilson was. Yeah. And Zach Wilson was being thrown in there with no backup option. So benching Wilson at some point like last week was not even an option because it's then all right, you're going to Mike White. I don't even know who Mike White is. I just learned who he was last week. But um and honestly, like in that Bill Belichick's defenses, like they're confusing. They're like, what, like, what did you think was going to happen? Honestly, yeah. it takes like, a with, veteran with quarterback out with your left tackle out. Yeah, like that, that, that's what that's what was going to happen. And and by the way, anyone who wants to who was freaking out about Zach Wilson in that game last week, why don't you go look at Peyton Manning's rookie year numbers? I'm not saying Zach Wilson's going to be Peyton Manning, but yeah. but look at look at his look at his rookie year numbers. It, it's like now all of a sudden. Like, I don't understand why now is everyone just expects rookies to just be unbelievable when they first come out of when they first come out of college and they're coming out younger and younger, especially a guy like Wilson, who comes out of BYU after like beating like North Alabama by 59 points every week last year. Yeah. Like, yes, yeah, so that's what's going to happen. Exactly. That's so. yeah. It's just it's, it boggles my mind. It's like, yeah, the best quarterbacks all sat for year. Mahomes, Rogers, they all sit. It takes time because being an NFL quarterback is so incredibly difficult. That it's Brady as well. Yeah, yeah. It just it takes time. It, there's a lot to be said by just sitting on the sidelines for even half a season just to be able to learn and pick up the game. And I think it's just because fans see uh, he was taken number two overall, and there's been other guys taken number two overall, and it, we just kind of expect that. And everyone forgets the guys that get tossed out there, like the David Cards of the world. That just got ran out there. Like, everyone mocked the Browns for how many years that, oh, they don't have a quarterback. And the one image of the one uh, woman that has the Browns jersey that has each of the starting quarterback's names and it's crossed out until the current day and it gets, like, all the way down to her knee. Like, everyone mocks the Browns for that because that's what they did. They just kept running out rookie quarterback after rookie quarterback until they finally got Baker, who was able to give some stability there. But even then, I mean... You'll find Browns fans are like, he's not really that great. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe if you would have sat him for a year. I know that really wasn't a great option, but if you would have done that, perhaps he would have been better. Which, just back to Mike White real quick. Yeah. He played uh, two seasons at the University of South Florida and then transferred to Western Kentucky for three years. 
That is their backup quarterback. That is who Zach Wilson is learning from. Uh, I will say, though, his 2016 season at Western Kentucky, um, he did pretty decent. 37 touchdowns and 7 interceptions in 14 games, 4,300 yards. Uh, then he threw, Yeah, then his senior year was a bit of a drop-off, 26-8 and eight, uh, with about 4,100 yards. So not... What, what was he drafted, like sixth round? Uh, he was drafted with the 171st pick, uh, fifth round. Nice, okay. Yeah, he was and with the Cowboys. The guys, there's, and then, there's the guy Zach Wilson has to learn from, with the defensive head coach. You know, this was reminding me an awful lot of Arizona. How come I feel like Zach Wilson's going to wind up getting uh, what we call in the business Josh Rosen? I think Wilson's. I think Wilson's better than because I, there, there honestly was like, like I, I didn't watch their week one game. I watched their I, I watched their game last week mm. uh, against the Patriots, but uh, I don't know. I don't want to say it yet, but uh, you just hope that. I mean, for, for the kids' sake, that yeah, that's not going to just get tossed aside here. Which I want to point out too: Wilson started two other seasons at BYU. His 2018 season started seven games, played in nine, 12 and three, 1500 passing yards. Following year, started nine games, played in nine games, about 2400 passing yards, 11 and nine. Then it was 2020 where he really came out, played 12 games, had about 3,700 passing yards, 33 touchdowns, three interceptions. So a great year there. And then he did more on the ground too. He ran for a little bit more, but he's always yeah. kind of been like a so-so runner, about three yards per carry, about 70 or so attempts a year. Like, what exactly changed? What exactly changed here that made him like so great in the course of one year? Like, I, I want to know. I honestly don't think he's bad either. Like, I yeah. don't think he's bad. But but the problem is, is, like, he is not the guy, like, like an ideal, like, guy that you, for example, a guy like Joe Burrow. Yeah. You can throw Joe Burrow out there. You can, like, and I know Trevor Lawrence has struggled at first, too, but you can throw Trevor Lawrence out there. And I even think a guy like Justin Fields you probably could have thrown out there week one as well. Mm. Zach Wilson from BYU, absolutely not. Yeah. No way. Why? Because Zach Wilson's 2020 schedule was made up of at Navy, Troy, Louisiana Tech, UTSA, at Houston, Texas State, Western Kentucky, at number one boy or at number 21 Boise, which was a win, blowout win, Northern Alabama, then a at Coastal Carolina, number 18 in the country at the time, loss. Uh, although that game was a really good game, so that was a so that was a great game. Yeah, I'll give them that. Uh, then. Then they beat San Diego State, and then they beat uh, UCF in the Boca Raton Bowl. So, I'll give you three real opponents. You play Boise State. Boise State was ranked at the time. They yeah. did not finish the season ranked, and the Boise State lost the Mountain West Championship game to San Jose State. You know, so, how was this team ranked eighth in the country for like four weeks? And not only in that, because I, I watched that Boise State game, yeah. and I remember that the Boise State quarterback got hurt, like the second possession of the game, yeah. and their backup quarterback could not do anything, so their defense was on the field the whole game. Yeah, that'll do her. And, and this is not to say that I think Wilson's going to be bad, but just to show that if you thought he was going to, he was going to, like, all right, he's got a week one starter with no backup option. 
that's like the most Jets thing you could possibly do. Yeah, it's just like I don't see the harm in going out and signing a veteran quarterback. You mean to tell me you couldn't find one? You like, couldn't have signed Teddy Bridgewater before he went to Denver. Like Yeah, like you couldn't have found a way to get Tyrod Taylor. Yeah. Like Tyrod Taylor seems like the perfect option. Somewhat similar yeah. play style. You know, you're able to kind of have a guy that's been a journeyman guy. He kind of understands I'm here for a year and then I'll move on. Like, it just seems like the perfect option there. Like him or Bridgewater, like you said, well, it would have been great. Like the Jets are just so, the Jets have caused us to talk for 15 minutes about the goddamn Jets. And neither one of us give a shit about the Jets. That's how frustrating the Jets are. If you're still listening. Bravo. You're, you're, you're amazing. You're a true fan. Bravo. If you do, tweet us about your thoughts on the Jets. Yeah, do that. Because if so, you know, I will even do this. If you, I'm going to look up this hashtag at the end of the week. I'm going to put it in my phone for Thursday night to remind me to do this. If you're still listening, comment your thoughts about our, our whole thinking about the Jets and if you agree or not and anything you want to add. And then be sure to either tag us in it, you know, the at Indie Ball Pod one on Twitter, or use the hashtag uh, IBRMYJ. <laughs> IBR yeah, NYJ. I, I think asking people to type out Indie Ball Report New York Jets is a bit much. So IBR NYJ. Just do that. Okay. I'm going to look that up. And anyone that uses it, I'm going to read your tweets for the thing to add at the end of the week. Sounds, sounds like a plan. That's a good idea. Yeah. So that's, that's what we're going to do. Uh, I think we're going to end it off here now, seeing as we spent Let's like 15 minutes about that. And it could have even been spun off to its own section, but it's, it's staying now. So uh, with that said, and nothing else left to add, don't forget to play ball. As long as it works, it's not weird. Simple as that.